Before we begin, uh, let me uh, start by asking God for help as we look at the scriptures today. <clears throat> Dear Jesus, the greatest need of the hour for each and every individual in this building and each and every individual watching from home and indeed each and every individual on the planet is to know you. There is no greater need of the human soul than to know the very one who made that soul. And I pray that your grace would come here through the power of the Holy Spirit, open my heart and my mind to be able to, to speak faithfully and consistently with the glories of Scripture and open all of our hearts, Father, to receive your word um, for what it really is, the truth and the glory and the beauty and the grace of Christ Jesus in the scriptures. Do this today, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen. So uh, today is the, by the way, it's good to have the Durbrooks. Um, thank you for stopping by on your way back to Greece. Um, when do you guys leave? Uh, 21st. 21st, okay. So if anybody wants to ask questions about the work that they're doing out there, make sure you speak with them at some point. Uh, after service and, and chat with them. Um, I'm excited that you guys are going back. That's awesome. Testament to God's faithfulness. Today is the, uh, the last day we're in this series that we've been in for <clears throat> like five or six weeks now, I think, called The Son Shows Us the Father. It's this uh, response of Jesus to his opponents in John 5. And next Saturday, if the Lord wills, we will begin our Easter series. Um, and uh, J.T. Kimball and Nikki Zemek will be preaching the first two weeks of that, and then I'll be with you on the third week, which is Easter. <clears throat> and we're going to be looking at the glories of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 is, uh, you may know this already, is Paul's defense and tristes on the resurrection of believers at the end of history. And it is an amazing text, and it is where I felt really God drawing us to for this Easter season. So we're going to have a three-week series in Easter, and then uh, if God desires, we'll go back into John after that. Um, <clears throat> really, there's a connection between Easter and the chapter that we're in in the book of John. And I don't know if you've noticed it over the past few weeks. Um, if you recall, at the very beginning of this series, we ended at the, the end of chapter 4, <clears throat> and we were looking at the story of a father an official who comes to Jesus in Galilee, and he asks him to go home with him to Capernaum to heal his son. And this little boy was on the verge of death, and Jesus, after exchanging a few words, tells him, go, your son will live. From like 25 miles away, Jesus stops the hand of death from claiming this little boy, and <clears throat> then we enter into chapter 5, which is where we've been for a good bit, where Jesus begins talking about another father and another son. This time, it is his own father, and he is the son. And Jesus begins this, uh, not really a dialogue, more like a, a monologue, uh, about his relationship with his father in this incident that happens where he uh, heals somebody at the beginning of chapter 5, and then goes on to say, I only heal people on the Sabbath 
because my Father is about healing people on the Sabbath. I am doing my Father's will. In everything that I do, I am showing my Father to this world. And one of the things that he said in, in that monologue, uh, it was in verse 25 just a few weeks ago in, in, uh, in the series that we're in right now, was this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. We saw that Jesus is talking here very clearly about raising the dead to life. First, spiritually, the people who are spiritually dead, and then on the last day, the resurrection of physical bodies. So this was a fitting text for us to be in, even though it was providential and completely not planned at all by me, uh, on our approach to Easter. And now we have come to the end. This is the last week we'll be looking at this, where Jesus has, over the past uh, two weeks at least, been defending his claims, the claims he's been making about his relationship to the Father through these witnesses that he's holding out. John the Baptist was the first witness he held out, and then he held out his own signs, the miracles that he does. And then he ends with this final witness, which is his father, his own father, God, who has borne witness to his son in the Holy Scriptures. Through his very word, he's communicated the reality and the truthfulness of all of Jesus' claims. And so that's where we're going to be today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 37, and we're going to be reading through 44. John 5, 37. <clears throat> it says this, uh, The Father, Jesus says, who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you have never seen and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe is his question. And it's a rhetorical question. He knows the answer. And this is the question Jesus asks as we move in on the end of his response to these opponents who are persecuting him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And he says that he is God's son, equal to God. He's asking him here, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So their unbelief isn't a shock to Jesus. It's not surprising that they don't believe Jesus. Uh, It's not surprising at all. Their rejection of him is not a shock. And the reason is because something is deep inside of them preventing faith. 
deep within them, there's this hostility, there's this opposition to who Jesus really is. It's, it's a deadness, to borrow from verse 25, a deadness to the glory and beauty and worth of Christ. In other words, Jesus is saying to them by asking this rhetorical question, it is right now impossible for you to believe in me. You will not be able to drum up anything in you. You are enslaved and you are captive to the praise of others, which we'll look at in a little bit. So think about this. There's something underneath our ability to trust in Christ that drives our souls, that pushes our hearts in a direction to either embrace Him or to refuse Him to either hold on to Jesus or to reject him. And in this passage, Jesus is going to reveal what that reality is for them and for really all of us. So why is it that they hate him? Like, why do they hate them? Well, what, what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to plumb the depths of their unbelief and go all the way to the bottom where the source of their impulses, their inclinations, their desires, the bottom of it all. But before we do that, I want to engage some of the stuff he says in verse 37. We're jumping to the end a little bit, but I want to to look at how he opens this up with this witness of his Father. Listen to this. I'm going to read it one more time. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet, it is they that bear witness about him. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus, this entire time, has been inviting them to come to him. He's been inviting them to have eternal life, to receive him. And he says here, my father... God himself has borne witness to me in his word. In the scriptures, you see a picture of me. They point to me. You're scouring over the Bible. You're, you're looking in the Torah. You're looking in the prophets. You're looking in, 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 in the Psalms to look for eternal life, but you don't recognize they're all about me. They point to Jesus, and yet they refuse to come to him. They don't want to believe in him. And Jesus says, the reason you don't want to believe in me is because, first off, you've never heard God's voice, and you've never seen his form. When I I read that, I'm like, neither have I. (laughs) Uh, it, It seems strange at first why he would put this here. Who's ever seen God's form? Who's ever heard God's voice? Um, And Jesus is point is precisely that. There is only one person who has ever heard God's voice this way, the way that he's talking about here, and we'll see what it's like. And there's only one person who's ever seen God face to face, and that one person is his son, Christ Jesus. Remember back in John 3, a long time ago, when we were looking at the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, maybe you'll remember this line, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus, We speak, in other words, he and his disciples who are speaking for him, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, 
how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then John, the author, at the very end of chapter 3, explains to us what Jesus means by all of this conversation about what he's bearing witness to. Listen to what he says. He who comes from above is above all. That's Christ. Christ is above all. He comes from above. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's all of us. And then he continues and says, he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. And again, that's referring to Jesus. John here is contrasting the difference between Christ and all of humanity. We are of the earth. He is from above. We speak whenever we talk in an earthly way, but he speaks about what he has seen and what he has heard, which is the same exact language in reverse that we see in John 5 when he says, you've never seen his form, you've never heard his voice. The point that Jesus is making here is that there's only one person who's ever had that experience with God, and that person is Christ. It is the Son, the only Son from the Father, because he is from above, because He's been in the presence of God, the Father, from all eternity as the Word, the eternal Word, which, if you remember from John 1, is how he is depicted, the Word who was both with God and was God at the same time. So Jesus Christ, think about this, it boggles the mind. Christ has been face-to-face with God for literally endless ages. There was never a time he wasn't with his father. We like to have beginnings because it's comfortable for us. That reality never had a beginning. So this is why the son can show us the father. He knows the father because he's always been with the father. He's always been seeing his father. He's always been hearing his father, but these people have never seen or heard God. And then he continues, here's the pivotal, pivotal element They don't have the Father's Word abiding in them. God's Word isn't inside of them. We looked at this a little bit last week. They know the Bible. They've got the Bible figured out to some degree. But the truth and the reality and the glory of the Scriptures hasn't taken root in their hearts. And this is why Jesus says they don't come to Him. The Scriptures point to Jesus and they don't realize that the reason that they're rejecting Jesus is because they already reject the Scriptures. They actually don't believe the Scriptures. They refuse to believe God's Word, a fact that is made evident in their rejection of the one that God sent into the world, the very one that the Scriptures have always pointed to. And so this is, <clears throat> this is the situation of these people. And it's from this place that Jesus now leaves the, the surface-level reality of, you don't believe in me. And, and plunges deep to the bottom. He drives into the depths of their unbelief and says, I'm going to show you the source. I'm going to show you the reason why you don't believe in me. Why is it that they don't have God's word abiding in their hearts? Like, what's the, what's the ultimate reason for that? Why is it that they reject Christ? What is in them that fuels their unbelief, their rejection of Jesus? Verse 41 begins to unfold this. Listen to Jesus He says, I do not receive glory from people. 
but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So this is the beginning of his explanation for why it is that they don't believe the Scriptures, that they reject the, the reality of Christ in the Scriptures. He says two things. Number one, I don't receive glory from people. And number two, I know you don't love God. You don't have a love of God within you. So what does he mean by this? Well, the first thing is this. He's saying, by saying, I don't receive glory from people, he means that he's not interested in the approval of man. He's not looking to be approved of by people. I'm not trying to garner praise from people. I'm not trying to receive glory from people. I'm not, Jesus is saying, I'm not a people pleaser who is fishing for compliments in order to boost my ego. That's not what I'm doing here. He doesn't need our validation. Jesus doesn't need our validation. In fact, in verse 30, he says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Christ has a one-track mind. He is interested in one thing. I want to please my Father. I want to receive his approval. But the second thing he says here is that they don't love God. They don't have a love of God in them. And so Jesus is saying, they're on the other side of this spectrum. He loves God and isn't interested in the praise of man, and they don't love God. So now we're looking deeper into their external response to Christ of unbelief. We're looking into their hearts, and Jesus says, I see into your hearts, and I only see darkness. I see darkness there. There is no love of God in your hearts. And this is a, this is a scathing indictment. I mean, these are the religious leaders of the day. Think about that for a moment. If anybody should have known and experienced and expressed the love of God, it should have been these folks. But he's saying that not only do you not believe the Scriptures, but you actually hate God. That's what it means to be, have zero love for God. But to not love an infinitely beautiful, infinitely wonderful, infinitely worthy being like God is to hate Him. And this is the reason that they've rejected the Scriptures. This is the reason that they've rejected Christ. They don't have a love for God. And I wonder, as I was reading through this text, I wonder if at these moments, these people who are persecuting Jesus want to interrupt him and interject and say, how dare you? How dare you claim that we don't love God? How dare you claim that our rejection of you is a rejection of God. But they don't. They don't say, it. nothing's recorded here. Maybe it's because Jesus doesn't let him, and he knows how to continue his sentences really rapidly. I don't know. Maybe it's because they can't get words out. Maybe they're confused. Maybe they're looking for stones, because they just were like, we're not even going to talk now. We're just going to end it right here. Or maybe they're connecting dots. Maybe some of them maybe some of them are realizing the truthfulness of what he's saying. And they're putting pieces together about their own hearts that they've never, ever, ever seen before. How sinful and how wicked their hearts really are. And what Jesus does next is he's going to provide them with a litmus test. He's going to provide them with evidence 
for the lack of love that they have for God. The reason why they reject God is going to be made manifest in this. So in, in verse 43, he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So here's a test. This is a test. Here's the evidence, Jesus is saying. Jesus says, he has come in his Father's name. He has come to show his Father. That's what it means to come in someone's name. This Father's name is all that his Father is, his glory, his worth, his beauty. He's come to show that. That's what Jesus is about. Jesus came solely for the glory of God. We're going to see this clearer as we get closer to the end. He's not here to garner the praise of man. He's not here to, 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 to gather uh, people together so that they make much of, of him in a way that dishonors the Father. He is here for his Father's name, but they're not. They're not interested in the glory of God. They're only interested in the glory that comes from man. He says, if another comes in his own name, you're going to receive him. You will receive him because you're just like him. That's why you'll receive him. You seek your own glory, and if he comes in his own name, he's doing the same thing you're doing. So think about this. Jesus came to show us the Father, but they reject him because they have already at some level, this thing's falling off me again. <laughs> they have at, at, at some level rejected him because they've already rejected the Father. They're not interested in loving God. And therefore, they're not interested in loving Jesus. They only desire, their operating faculty is the praise of man, which becomes clear in verse 44. This is the verse that we began today with, and this is going to help explain and open up this entire passage. He's, and you can almost, like when we read this verse, you can almost hear his exasperation and his frustration and his sorrow in this verse. Listen to what he says here. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. In other words, you reject God's glory for your own. That's what's going on here. You reject God's glory for your own. Jesus is saying that at the root of their unbelief, their unwillingness to come to Christ is a rejection of the glory of God for the sake of receiving glory that comes from man. That's their main problem. And so Jesus says, how can you believe? Why would you expect to believe? Why, why, why would anybody expect for you to have faith? Faith for these men with their hearts like this is impossible. There is something broken deep, deep within their souls that craves and desires and longs for the approval and the praise of man rather than seeking the approval and embracing the glory of God, the glory that comes from the only Father. And what is shocking about these men, about this incident really, is that it is not an isolated incident. <clears throat> This is not something that is specific for just them. This reality is the baseline for all humanity. They're not exceptions to the rule. They're not special. They are the rule. 
for human beings. This right here is the default state of the human heart. In Romans 1, which Jacob opened up a few weeks back, clearly says this. Paul says in Romans 1 that God, in and through the creation of all things, everything in the cosmos, the entire universe, God has indisputably revealed himself. He's made himself very clear. Through his divine nature, through his eternal power, the world knows there is a God who made all of this. And so Paul's statement at the beginning of Romans is like, there's no excuse for unbelief. There literally is no excuse. You'd have to believe that it all came from nothing, and no one's that stupid. He wasn't here 2,000 years later. Paul says that God has seen to it that a witness for his glory is known by every single human being at some level in their consciousness. If they can perceive the created world, they should know. They do know, Romans 1 says. And yet they reject God. They refuse to honor him. They create a fiction in their mind and they say that's not true. That's somebody's fantasy and they don't give him thanks for all that he's given them. And they reject him. Paul summarizes it like this, claiming to be wise, they, that is, all humanity, became fools and exchanged the glory, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's John 5 right there. That is John 5 that we've been in. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about to his opponents. To exchange the glory of God for images in creation is to seek validation from things in this world. That's what images are. There's nothing special about a a graven image. You carve it out of a rock or a piece of wood. You put it on your mantle. You worship it because it can give you what you want. That's the idol. If it doesn't give you what you want, you trade it out for another one. That's the goal. So in ancient times, like that's what images were for. Everything hung on that image about what it could give you. It is the exchanging of God and his glory for creation, something we want from this world that we prefer over God. At its root is what Jesus says in John 5. It is an absence of any true, any real love for God and a desire ultimately to enjoy, to receive, to to embrace the praise of man, approval from man. And Jesus says to them in John 5, how in the world can you believe when you are in love with the praise that comes from people? And so this is the central issue with these opponents of Christ in John 5. It isn't a matter of, I mean, this is one of the things that the Bible, if you read it enough, you recognize it disabuses you of this, of this idea that it's just willpower. I just need to, need to you know, pull together enough evidence to convince this person that, that, that these things are real. It's not a matter of willpower. It's not a matter of evidence. Jesus could line up witnesses all day long. They will respond in the same way. Because these men have a love affair with receiving glory and not embracing the glory of God. And this isn't just a problem isolated on these men 2,000 years ago. This is a problem that every person in the human race suffers from. 
The Bible, like we just saw in Romans 1, makes it clear the main problem with the entire human race is this issue, a love affair with receiving things from creation and refusing God. And Jesus, in John 5, ends on a somber and dark note that we looked at briefly last week, where Jesus says in verse 45, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, he's talking about the scriptures. We looked at this last week. He's talking about the fact that Moses, who authored or wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, laid out repeatedly pictures of Christ over and over and over again. And they look at those things and they don't see Jesus in them. And this is where the conversation ends. Part of me wonders what happened next. Like what John just continues the narrative into chapter 6. In a few weeks, God willing, we'll be taking 5,000, we'll t- be taking, you know, five loaves of bread or whatever and making it into, you know, feed 5,000 people. And not another word is said about this. I-, I wonder what happens to these people because of what Jesus says here. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Why say that? Unless... Some of them are thinking that. I want to believe that he said that because some of them were coming to understand who he really was. Maybe they were starting to feel the the truthfulness of what he was saying, infiltrating their heart, and maybe they wondered if he was actually going to accuse them, if he was the Son of God, and that on the final day they would be looking into his face and they would be on the receiving end you know, this, this time they've been interrogating Jesus. They've been persecuting Jesus. And maybe some of them in that crowd are thinking, you know, we thought he was on trial with us. But maybe, maybe we are in fact the ones who are actually on trial. And this closing line is what Jesus would leave them before departing. I know the irony of this whole chapter must not have been lost on them. That... They were attacking him because they thought he was violating the law of Moses, yet he says at the end, Moses is going to accuse you on the final day before my father. Moses is going to be the one. His words in the scripture are going to be held out against you even though you're using them against me right now because Moses wrote about Christ. And their rejection of Christ, their rejection of Christ is really only an echo of the rejection of Moses and of their rejection of the scriptures, and of their, ultimately, their rejection of God himself, the author of the scriptures. And so here's the, here's the deal. This is what I want us to do as we, as we start to grapple with the end of this, this passage. What if we were there? Like, what if, what if we were the ones in the crowd that had been talking to Jesus in John 5? What would our response be? We're sitting there or standing there looking at him, he's saying these things about us. Maybe we realize that, that they're true. This is where my mind's been pouring over this text for the last few months. What would I, how would I respond? Jesus has just said to me that I reject him because I don't have the love of God within me. He said to me that my rejection of this man, this 33-year-old Galilean 
rabbi is a rejection of the creator of the universe, how would I respond? Well, John does not leave us in the dark on how the large and vast majority of people responded to Jesus in this book. In chapter 12, he will tell us what their response to Jesus ultimately will be. 1236 uh, says this, when Jesus said these things, this is at the very end of his ministry, these are the last things that he says publicly. When Jesus said these things, he departed from them and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. But then in verse 42, John 12, he says this, just a few verses below. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For, listen to this, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's how this ends in John 12. Even the authorities who believed in him, who trusted him, would not confess him publicly. They were scared because they loved the glory that comes from man. And they love that more than the glory that comes from God. That's why. It's precisely what Jesus is saying in John 5. He's saying that the main problem with the human heart in refusing to receive Christ for who he is as the only son from the Father, the main problem here isn't a lack of evidence. The Bible says there's plenty of that. It isn't a lack of proof or witnesses. The main problem is that people are addicted to their own glory. They want to be made much of. They want to be approved. They want to be honored. And they, if you were really to get to the bottom of it, don't give a rip about the glory of God. They don't care about that. But here's the good news. And this is the best news in the world. Jesus is nothing like us. Nothing like us. Jesus is completely committed to the glory of his Father. And he has come in his Father's name. To Jesus, his Father's glory is everything. There's nothing greater than that. There's nothing more beautiful than that. It is everything to him. And that fact becomes crystal clear as he approaches the cross. Jesus does everything he does so that his Father's name would be honored, especially his death, especially the cross. I want you to listen to a few verses earlier in chapter 12. As Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly ministry, public ministry, and the cross where he will die, facing the wrath of God, six hours pinned to a tree outside of Jerusalem, looms in front of him hours away. This is what Jesus says. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, 
glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is what it means for Jesus to come in his Father's name. This is what it means. In fact, this was the very purpose that he was born into the world, that he came into the world, that he was looking always toward the cross. Jesus came to glorify his Father ultimately in his sacrificial death for us, for his people. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then that voice from heaven comes thundering, I have glorified it. In other words, the Father glorified his name in his Son, through his Son. His son, this son showed the glory of the Father in everything he did. Everything he said. He was always exalting the Father's worth, exalting the Father's majesty. And now, only hours from the cross, he has one purpose, one goal. One thing is on his mind. Father, glorify your name. Whatever happens next, to me. Make sure your name is exalted and glorified. I don't care about the glory that comes from man. I don't care about the praise of people. I am here for one purpose, to seek the glory that comes from my Father in heaven. And his Father here, in his response to his Son, promises, oh, I'm going to glorify it. I'm going to glorify it again. And he does glorify it on the cross. He glorifies it on the cross by vindicating his worth in paying for his people's rejection of him with the blood of his own son. That's what happened on the cross. That's what the cross is. When Jesus says, for this purpose I have come to this hour, in his mind, he knew that vindication had to happen. His father was dishonored for ages and ages and ages by humanity. And the only way to recover that glory is to hold out a perfect sacrifice to take the justice due for that dishonoring. And that's who Jesus is. Entirely sufficient to pay for the sin of mankind. For every single time you or I or anyone who has trusted him has rejected God's glory. And it is on that cross that we see the infinite worth of the Father in the atoning work of Christ and the Son. And it is not only that we see the worth of God and His glory and His beauty on the cross, but we see also how much He must have loved us to go through with that. He could have glorified His name in any way. Any way He wanted to. He could have judged us and glorified his name in that way, but he chose to glorify his name in the most costly act in human history, the redemption of his people on the cross by holding out his perfect son as a sufficient sacrifice for every single time that you or I have ever exchanged his glory for something infinitely less worthy. That's what the cross is. The cross is where the glory of Christ, the glory of God the Father shines the brightest Because God is showing both his value, his worth, his beauty, his glory to the world, and he is showing how much he loves us, how he's he's willing to do this in order to get us back, though we be unworthy. So as we close this series and really close our time today, 
I want to invite you. I feel like this is the tone that John 5 leaves the reader on. I want to invite you to let go of lesser glories. I want to invite you, invite myself, I've been thinking about this all week, to release your grip on any glory that has enthroned itself in your heart where only God should be. And to instead seek the glory that comes from the only God. A glory to be treasured, a glory that is given to us freely in Christ, His Son, and His work on the cross. A glory that if I'm real with you, we do not deserve a single drop of, and yet he offers it to us. Don't refuse a part of your life to Christ. Don't refuse to come to Jesus and receive him as the treasure he is because of some other glory that you want to hold on to or you're seeking. Don't do that. Whether it's the, pro- the approval of man whether it's praise from other people, whether it's a pleasure that you think will satisfy you, let me just be real with you, it never will. You were made to know the living God. And every other glory that we seek in this world will fail ultimately to fill the void, the depths, the part of us that was made to treasure and cherish the only God. We were made for his glory and I'm Humbly asking you, I'm humbly asking myself to be perfectly honest, to receive this glory from this text. John 5 makes it clear. This is what Christ came. He came to ransom us so that we would have this for ourselves. In the next few moments, we'll be participating in the Lord's Supper, communion. And if your faith is in Christ, if you trust him and you're part of the body of Christ, I invite you to, during this next song, to participate, single serve, communion cups, in the foyer if you don't have one already. And when you do, I just want you to think about the cross. I just want you to think about what that was like. That despite the sin in each of our lives, despite the the brokenness that we struggle with, God right now is meeting us in John 5. And he's showing us through his son that he is totally worthy of our love and adoration. He's showing us that he's worth giving up everything for because none of it compares to him. And the cross stands at the center of human history to not only show how worthy he is, but just how far he was willing to go to get us back. And I want us to feel that. That's why John 5 is in this, in this book. That's why John recorded this is so that we recognize that pursuing the glory that comes from man is infinitely trivial compared to seeking the glory that comes from the only God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we have many things in our lives that are good. We have many things in our lives that are probably bad. and broken and sinful, and we know them. But all of these things that we possess, whether good or bad, become horrifically bad when we put them in the throne of our hearts, where only you belong. 
And so I'm pleading with you on my behalf and on the behalves of my friends that you would work in our hearts to root out lesser glories that have taken a place of prominence in our lives, Father God, and set our heart and our mind on seeking the, the glory that comes from the only God, from seeking your approval, from, from hungering and thirsting for righteousness, from desiring and longing to please our Father in heaven like Christ did, and from em- embracing your glory, your worth, your beauty as our greatest treasure. Father, I ask you that you would do this in our hearts, that the fruit of John 5 in our brief time in this text would be a zeal in our souls to uproot lesser glories and embrace the treasure of Christ and his Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.